Would you say that you connect to the food that you eat? And I'm not talking about the type of connection where you stare into a bag of chips that you swear you were just going to have a few of. I'm talking about the connection between land, food, and people. As we become more urbanized, our disconnection from food becomes greater. And this can be particularly difficult for native populations who have a deep connection to the land. These connections are super important and can sometimes be a little bit difficult to navigate. Speaking of difficult to navigate, I don't have a good connection to introduce the fact that my name is Louis Colorotolo. I'm a food science graduate student at the University of Guelph, trying my best to get a PhD. And in the meantime, I like to talk with other graduate students about what they're studying and why we should care about it. Which is why today we are talking to connection-making expert Liz Miltenberg, who is a settler that studies the native populations, urbanization, and the connection of land to food. We are going to learn about what crops were important to native peoples, what our current lands once were, and how today we are making those connections between land, people, and food. But since we're graduate students, a lot like the buses, sometimes you miss a connection. Because we don't know everything, which is why you're listening to another episode of We Know Some Stuff. Hi, Elizabeth. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? I am doing quite well over here. Can you give us a history of your education? For sure. So I started my undergrad degree at Western University, and I did health sciences specializing in health promotion. And then after my undergrad, I knew that I wanted to keep doing school of some capacity because I my undergrad was pretty generalized, um, but I wasn't quite sure what I was really interested in. And funny enough, I, I remember being in my like second, third year and knowing that I did not want to go into research. I did not want to do a thesis. So I actually, um, I was thinking about maybe doing public health, but then that didn't work out. And so then after a couple years off, I was like, okay, maybe I can do a thesis if it's something that I'm really passionate about and if it's something that I can like be really engaged in and I'm not stuck in a lab somewhere and just because I'm not that kind of person. So, <laughs> so I knew that's what I had to do. And so then, yeah. And so then I was, I was looking for some, some supervisors around food insecurity, food sovereignty, and particularly I was interested in working with um, indigenous populations in some capacity. And so then I found my supervisor at the time, Dr. Hannah Tate-Newfeld was at the University of Guelph, and she was in the Applied Human Nutrition Department. So I applied, and and I guess here we are. <laughs> here you are. The thesis caught you. Mm-hmm. It did. It grabbed you. <laughs> now you can't escape. But you're almost done, aren't you? I am. Yes. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. Just get out. Don't look back. Run away <laughs> as fast as you can. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... In general terms, uh, let's just open it up. Let's let's you know not be shy about it. What what in the world do you do? Mm-hmm. So I, in broad terms, am studying indigenous food sovereignty, and specifically, my work is is really community based. And so I'm working with with urban indigenous people in Kitchener Waterloo region, so really local here to this area. And really just working alongside and supporting and doing research around this, yeah, food sovereignty efforts that are happening and being led by Indigenous people that are living in the cities here. So specifically, I got involved in this project because my supervisor had a partnership with this group called Wisoktwinawak, which is a, it's a collective of people and a collective of gardens 
that are trying to grow indigenous foods or trying to, you know, revitalize indigenous food knowledge in urban centers, essentially. And so this partnership happened in 2018 and and was kind of connected further to the campus at the University of Guelph, where they actually established a like a tea and medicine garden in at the University of Guelph in the Arboretum. And so that's still there to this day. They also, in the like first year, tried to grow a little demonstration garden of the corns, beans, and squash, which were the three sisters, but it didn't it didn't work out that well because there is lots of other animals and <laughs> critters that live in the arboretum. So it wasn't a very good location for actual food production, but the 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 herbs and the teas and the medicines uh, did well. And so that little spot has still stayed there. So that's kind of the context, I guess, for my research. But really my thesis is focusing on highlighting these initiatives and kind of exploring how they're impacted by the urban setting. So yeah, that's that's kind of what I am interested in and thinking about in the broadest sense. All right, so things we learned so far. Squirrels don't like herbs and tea. <laughs> Crops are very important. Uh, the land that we are on is important. And the fact that we want to be able to grow it in a city setting is important. So I've, I already have about 300 million questions. Uh, let me start with one of them. Well, which may seem a little bit abstract, but my brain can't process it right now. Why in the world would I want to grow indigenous crops? Like, what's wrong with our food now? Mm -hmm. Well, I think what's really important is that we realize um, that the land we're on is is indigenous land. That, you know, we are on this land that was cultivated by indigenous peoples for hundreds of thousands of years and these peoples are still alive and their cultural groups are alive to this day but they physically aren't in this location um, anymore because it has been urbanized it's become the cities and at the same time there are many indigenous peoples across turtle island which is uh known as north america to many indigenous groups you know they've also been dispossessed and displaced from their lands through processes of settler colonialism, which I could talk about for another hour <laughs> if we wanted to go dive deep into that part of our history. And so, yeah, really for for Indigenous people to reconnect to the land and connect to their identity, it's important to be able to grow these ancestral foods or even just to grow food that comes from the land as a way to, yeah, kind of revitalize culture and like continue on um, what it means to be Indigenous. Yeah, and so in this region, we have the Haudenosaunee people, uh, the Anishinaabe people, um, we're on the treaty lands of the Mississauga, um, and more uh, historically before that, the Attawandran people lived in around the um, Grand River and even likely very much so at the Speed and Aramosa River, which um, meet right at the boathouse if you uh, if you live in Guelph or have been in the city before. So so it's important to recognize these the history of our lands and and what people were here, but also what you know foods that they had and and the significance of those foods. Yeah, and I think one kind of like a large general statement out there is that food is incredibly important to culture and identity, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes. So by trying to cultivate these products that are uh, towards the indigenous land and, and, and the cultural kind of staples for people who, you know, um, 
uh, come from this land, that is not just like, ah, yes, we like to eat this corn. Ah, yeah, we like to eat this squash. This is a, it's kind of a big deal, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's much more than like taste preference or access. It's, it's, It's much more about that connection and that relationship essentially with with the land and really to think about the significance of it we kind of have to like set aside our own um, understandings about what food is and, and kind of reflect on how indigenous people view and relate to their food and it's very very relationship based because many indigenous people are land-based people and that's where um, their identity comes from and so so by being able to grow different foods, it's really about being able to nurture that relationship with the land, which is so important because that's what's been lost and that's what's been fragmented and disconnected through all of the processes of of colonization. Yeah, and that is really such a a large topic that uh, there's only Mm -hmm. so much time Mm -hmm. to discuss that. Can you kind of give us a, a brief on how people have moved from their native lands into different areas? So... Basically, basically, before uh, Europeans arrived to North America, this land had many hundreds and in different indigenous nations and communities. And through the process of colonization, you know, the reserve system was implemented, which essentially relocated people from their their settlements, or if they were more communities that moved around uh, with the through the seasons and with the different animals on the land. Really, the the goals of settler colonization was to to claim the land for their own um, to develop it and to settle it because the wealth is in the land um, from a very Eurocentric perspective. Um, and so through yeah systems like the reserve uh, system or even just um, the treaties to kind of acted as ways to um, control where indigenous people are able to live and to be. And so it was very, very systematic in, uh, in those ways, because really a lot of the reserves are placed in unideal locations, um, especially when it comes to food production. Um, a lot of the reserves are, you know, not great soil um, quality, or they're further away from, you know, a water source and that sort of thing. So yeah, and so, you know, indigenous people are, not all of them are from reserves either. Um, there's lots of other nations and, and Métis who, um, who've been displaced and dispossessed of their lands in other ways. And then also, you know, Indigenous people don't just live out in these reserves and traditional territories. They've also moved and, and adjusted to our changing society, just as we have. And after World War II, there was a general movement towards urbanization for, for everyone that was living in um, Canada. And so, so Indigenous people are part of that movement too. And trying to find opportunities for work and employment, um, education. Um, so there is quite a large number of Indigenous people living in our urban centres. Um, and actually, the majority of Indigenous people in Canada now live in urban centres. And this is a statistic that we don't really recognize because we don't associate urban centres to be these places for Indigenous people. And and a lot of what we're educated and kind of the narrative that we are told around what Indigenous people look like it's kind of a one version that isn't really accurate to um, be reflective of all people. And, and there's such a diversity too. And so so I think it's really important to challenge those kinds of assumptions and stereotypes and 
And that was a big learning process for me as well. I'd... All right, so let me hit up with another broad question. Between the displacement and the isolation and the containment of uh, communities, how does this affect nutrition and food insecurity? What's the connection here? Yes, so through processes of settler colonization, which I alluded to, food was also a big tool in that. And so... There's um, there's accounts of of cornfields being burnt, and there's there's evidence of the bison being basically eradicated in the plains. Um, these very intentional methods of controlling food waste, and part of that too is also controlling the knowledge around around how these food skills are transmitted. And then through that too, um, with the introduction of a lot of um, westernized foods like flour, sugar, salt, butter. These um, foods then became introduced to many indigenous peoples. And, you know, there's some really cool examples of how um, or resiliency of how indigenous people have used these these ingredients, which were basically like kind of rationed to them in a lot of treat agreements. It was like, we'll give you, you know, these kinds of um, like supplements for for how we're now controlling and moving you. And then so things like bannock were made, um, which is a mixture of water and flour and milk to kind of make this dense kind of doughy bread. So even though it's not particularly considered like food from the land or even like particularly healthy food by some people, it has a really important significance to it because it's kind of a example of how indigenous people have adapted to these changing circumstances. But then within all that too is this kind of thing that happened is called the nutrition transition, which is a a word used um, in other disciplines as well around this changing dietary pattern. It has happened in other parts of the world too, but it's also happened specifically here in Canada among Indigenous people who, you know, have kind of over just a few generations gone from a very land, water, food-based diet to now consuming these other foods that have been introduced. And also quickly on top of that, as maybe even our parents' generation saw, like quickly the increase of fast food and um, processed food. And so over just a short number of generations, there's been this drastic change in the foods people are consuming, which has affected all of us in our health conditions, but even more so it has impacted the health of Indigenous peoples. And so, so yeah, so there's, there's more health challenges around um, diet-related illness and diseases for that many Indigenous people face. You know, and I think one of the most beautiful, or maybe not beautiful, but one of the most prevalent examples of that is that if you were to go to this intersection of the Speed and Aramosa River, as you were mentioning, uh, sort of near downtown Guelph, you will find on the street that borders it an A&W, a Wendy's, a McDonald's, Tim Hortons, and a KFC, hmm. all in one row. Mm -hmm. It's it's a kind of a stark imagery of a, a once thriving river community, now a very thriving fast food community. Mm-hmm. One thing that I guess is sometimes hard to grasp your mind around is that, well, we now we have uh, all of these fast food restaurants and they're open sometimes 24-7. Uh, how in the world does that contribute to food insecurity? If anything, now you could get a burger 24-7. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so it's interesting because the access to food is you know, quite available. Um, food is kind of all around us. And, you know, especially with the pandemic, Uber Eats and those sorts of things are just fingertips away, which is a very dangerous thing. But, um, you know, our like access to food is is so easy now than ever. But but there's also a real challenge with that. And, and I think the 
the seemingly access to our food is um, the disconnection from it and the disconnection from where it actually comes from and and where, you know, the different hands that have been involved in in harvesting the ingredients to even processing it and to, to people bringing it to the retail shop so that you can purchase it as the consumer. Um, and so we only see the product at the end of it and we don't see the rest of the life that this food has journeyed on. And, and that I think is kind of a broader thing to not necessarily food insecurity, but I think it is one kind of piece to this, to this problem. Yeah. And so we've kind of lost this connection to our food. And, and so that kind of speaks a bit more broader to food insecurity, but yeah, having this availability and access of all of these fast food restaurants, that doesn't necessarily solve the problem because we still need to have an income in order to purchase foods. Uh, typically, a lot of the unhealthier, cheaper processed foods are are less expensive compared to the healthy, nutritious, especially local, organic foods are, you know, twice, three times as much money. So um, when it comes to food insecurity, that's really where we see this problem is, you know, food might be available and accessible, but the kinds of food that people are actually able to purchase and and support themselves with is not the best quality food. Um, and so then that's where we really see food insecurity and and even more so for people who who lack the financial means to afford food at all or really struggle to do so. So then you are getting down to the very beginning of the food life cycle. And you are interested and work a lot with community gardening. Can you give us a brief? Yeah. So, so really, I believe that you know, food insecurity is an issue that we need to solve. But, but even broader than that is, yeah, kind of getting really to the root of um, where the food and our relationship to it comes from, and that is what kind of speaks to food sovereignty, which is really about a food grower or producer or farmer to have control over where that food comes from and how it is processed and sold. And so with the Indigenous community gardening efforts that are happening, it's an example of how that food sovereignty piece can kind of start being played out in reality. Because, you know, if you're an Indigenous person who lives in the city and all you have access to are grocery stores and fast food restaurants, there's no control and there's no self-determination over your food system. So by gardening, it's that first step into um, actually being able to produce and grow food for yourself. And so then that kind of ties back into what we were talking about at the beginning and in that greater importance too around um, not just growing kind of you know, food to feed yourself, but then also being able to grow these foods that have real and social um, significance to them um, as well. Because a lot of the times, these are also foods that you can't get <laughs> in grocery stores or other places. So really being able to grow them yourself is the only way to access them. So yeah, that's what a lot of these um, groups are trying to do. And the Wasak Twinawak Collective specifically that I've been working with uh, has been growing different things like the Three Sisters. So we have Haudenosaunee white corn, which comes from Six Nations. So it's fully relevant to people. And there's a lot of um, urban indigenous folks who, who know the white corn and who have processed it and consume it in different ways. We have different varieties of squash and different like heirloom beans as well. And as well, like part of the gardens as well is not just growing food, but also medicines, because that's really important for ceremony and for culture too. So, so there's um, tobacco that's been, been grown in the gardens as well, because that's um, a really significant plant for spirituality and being able to practice um, ceremony and have, yeah, be able to offer that 
that plant back to the earth. So yeah, so those are just kind of an example of some of the foods and plants that are being grown in these gardens that are, yeah, kind of popping up across the the Waterloo Wellington region. And then uh, who owns these gardens? Mm, that's a really great question and actually kind of segues into my uh, research kind of findings because really in order for there to be sovereignty over uh, food systems, it's not just about being able to grow the food itself, but being able to kind of have that that control over the land as well. And I'm hesitant to actually use the word control because of how Indigenous people relate to the land. It's much more relationship-based as opposed to a control ownership mentality, which again is very Eurocentric of us to apply into always needing to own things and to have our control over, <laughs> over stuff. So currently, a lot of the gardens are um, like I mentioned, there's one at the University of Guelph, so there's kind of different institutions. There's a few other gardens that are uh, landowners um, that have offered up space for these gardens to to be created and and used for there. And also, there's another garden that's um, located at a, a non-for-profit local um, organization. So, so yeah, it's interesting that all of these gardens are um, on land that is not owned by the indigenous folks that are that are gardening on them. And that's kind of the interesting piece around what does indigenous food sovereignty look like in urban settings? And my thesis kind of argues that there needs to be access to land first and foremost for these things to happen. But that access to land doesn't necessarily equate ownership of land, but being able to have a relationship with it and and with the, the land owners um, to be able to work with them to have these initiatives and um, efforts be sustained. So yeah, so that's kind of the the piece of where the urban setting makes things kind of interesting and, and also complicated and, and these different views towards land and working within a Eurocentric legal system about how land is owned and controlled and, and managed. So, so yeah, so it's kind of a, an interesting place to kind of be and to think about really a lot of us are, are kind of questioning, you know, how do we move forward in a good way and also continuing to do these efforts but if there was ever an opportunity to to own land outright then what does that mean especially with recognizing the the treaties that were on as well and and honoring the the people that were were here before it's yeah there's lots of um and this is a discussion that's happening across canada right like the land back movement is uh, gaining a lot of momentum we can see land defenders really locally the the folks at Six Nations that are um, protecting 1492 Lane Back Lane. And, and this past summer, we saw folks at um, Victoria Park in Kitchener. So yeah, this is a movement that people are kind of gaining attention towards and paying attention to and kind of recognizing that this is an important thing that we need to kind of have these discussions and conversations about and for all of us to kind of, yeah, kind of always remind us where we come from and also to situate ourselves on on this land and understand what our relationship is, is with it too. So then you talk about understanding where things come from, having sort of um, a knowledge of the land, appreciating the resources, appreciating what they used to be. You do a little bit of outreach in order to kind of spread this message. Uh, and, and one that I wanted to talk about is that you have uh, worked with learning how to create some certain indigenous dishes. Mm -hmm. With the um, with Sauk to Winnewak Collective, 
one of the kind of goals of this project is to increase access to food, but also get people engaged in cooking and processing the foods themselves. And so prior to COVID, um, we had um, workshops and events where people could um, participate in some of these hands-on activities. And so we had, um, at one point, I can't remember when it was now because yeah, time is <laughs> time is hard to pinpoint, but we did have a, um, a cooking and a canning workshop on campus right in the Guelph the Food Lab. And so we made some salsa and also did some cooking with the Three Sisters and making the Three Sisters soup that was then actually shared with um, the Indigenous Student Center and because they do a weekly soup and bannock lunch. Um, so we all um, got to sit down together and, and share some of that um, meal with some of the foods that came right from the garden. So, yeah. Yeah, that's that's a super cool sort of outreach. It really connects the present with the past. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that that's kind of what you're trying to do. Yeah more or less. Yeah, really, it's about getting more people engaged in kind of what's going on and, and more people are getting interested in gardening and wanting to grow their own foods um, that we've seen since the pandemic. You know, people have realized the importance of, of local foods, but also that's really important for Indigenous peoples too in, in bigger ways because of the, the history of, of how food and land has been taken away from, from them. Lots of kind of opportunities to help out in the gardens if... Um, People want to be a part of this. And I should share too the the meaning behind the name Wusak Tuinawak. And so the first new shoots from Mother Earth after a fire has come through the land. And it's a really um, poetic description of what we're trying to accomplish. Kind of do something new in these urbanized, colonized spaces to still, you know, kind of revitalize these traditional foods, but also these um, indigenous practices and relational ways of being, transmitting that knowledge between people who hold it and the youth who are trying to learn it. So there's all of these different things going on that can happen out of a, a garden, which I think is really cool that there's just like so much potential with what can go forward and different ways to yeah be involved. And other people, if you're a student or living on campus or in the city, um, but realizing that like, you know, if you want to support Indigenous land efforts, like it can happen right here locally. So being aware that there's this kind of stuff going on, I think is really cool to be to be paying attention to and to get involved in. Yeah. So then do you have any resources or ways to find out how you could participate in this kind of thing that you could list off? Yes. So we have a website and it is the shortened version of the <laughs> word was socked in a walk. So yeah. IP as I could not spell that. I could barely spell my own name. <laughs> That's fair. So yeah, so it's uh, just W-I-S-A-H-K dot C-A. And we also have an Instagram and a Facebook page. And we're also starting our own podcast. So there's a few episodes in recording right now. But yeah, I'd say the website is kind of the, the main place to see kind of what's been going on and get connected and yeah. There's there's a email on there too, so if people are interested in volunteering or just learning more, that's kind of the main point of contact to kind of plug in. Awesome, love it. I I will put links to that in all of the archives. So to wrap things up, put a nice little bow on everything. Could you give us a brief 
spiel of why what you're doing is important. Mm -hmm. Land-based knowledge and land-based relationships are kind of at the center of these urban indigenous food efforts, um, food sovereignty efforts. And in order for food sovereignty to be even actualized or thought about, there needs to be access to land in these urban spaces. And that's really important because of the history of how Indigenous people have been separated from the land and the knowledge has been um, disrupted. And so really, it's important to revitalize some of these pathways and these learnings. And being able to do that really happens by having that access to land to form these relationships that then foster knowledge and just being in community with each other through gardening, but also harvesting and processing food and all the different kind of activities that happen from that. And of course, sharing food and eating it and enjoying it with everyone. <laughs> yeah, and that that's definitely the part that I think a lot of people can connect mm -hmm. to eating and sharing. food. Oh, yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking with us today. It, uh, it really was a real pleasure. Yeah, I enjoyed this opportunity to chat with you too. And uh, share a little bit about the research and work that I've been doing. So yeah, so thank you for having me. Thank you, Liz, for making those connections for us. The special relationship between food, people, and the land, specifically in indigenous populations, makes a whole lot more sense when Liz is explaining it. And as this episode ends, we get to the part that we admit as graduate students, we don't know all the stuff, which of course the show is called We Know Some Stuff. And one thing we don't really know are numbers right off the top of our head. We're always hesitant to give stats and numbers because we aren't always perfectly solid on them, which is why we are taking an opportunity at the end of the episode, a little fact check, post-recording in order to introduce some statistics. Now try not to get too excited, but Elizabeth dug up some stats. She says that 85% of Indigenous peoples within Canada live off reserves. Now this is especially important when we're talking about urban centers, where there is an even larger disconnect from the land, the foods, and those people who are from it. And it's also estimated that 20,000 indigenous people live in the Waterloo and Wellington regions, which is where we are seeing some of these food sovereignty initiatives emerging. So Elizabeth packs some powerful facts in this fact check episode of We Know Some Stuff. So to end things here, we're going to finish off with just a reminder of the website if you want to visit the Wissatinawak Initiative. It is w-i-s-a-h-k dot c-a. And thank you for listening to another episode of We Know Some Stuff.